This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.49, Tabula Rasa. And as always, we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong fan of Mecha in all its many forms and, as far as you know, extremely tall. <laughs> what? They can't see me. I could be tall. What does that have to do with anything, though? They should know that I'm tall and very handsome. I'll give you that one. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and sometimes I wish I were worse at predictions. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 319 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Ziphias Z, Austin B, and Calder. MSB would not be possible without your support. If you've been protesting, calling and writing to local and national politicians, donating and raising money for bail funds and other community organizations, for Black Lives Matter and an end to police brutality and impunity, thank you. It falls to those of us who may not feel as personally affected to not look away, not lose interest, and not lose heart. We all need to find a way to make the fight for justice part of our day-to-day -day lives. It doesn't need to be all that you do, but it can still be there, part of the rhythm of your days, your weeks, and your months. As I've seen many longtime activists point out, this is a marathon, not a sprint. If we don't burn out, if we don't check out, then we can achieve things that just a few years ago felt impossible. And now back to Gundam. This week we are talking about Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 48, The Mirror of Rosamia, or Rosamia no Nakade. After the recap and our talkback, we have some research about Basque Alm's voice actor. But first, let's tune in to TNN. Okay, Lieutenant Commander, are you ready to begin? Oh yes, I feel fabulous. I can't wait to get back to deciding the news. Glad to hear it. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We still have lots of tests to run before we can be sure that you're ready for active duty newscasting. Let's uh, start with an easy one, okay? Reports from the Gate of Zidane space region indicate that His Excellency Jamatov Hyman was killed during an off-the-books negotiation with Mon Karn and in the ensuing battle, Titan's forces, led by Paptimus Sirocco, were soundly defeated by Ayug and Axis Zeon, taking significant losses and retreating in disarray. Uh, during the fighting, the Zeon battleship Guadan was destroyed. <laughs> don't softball me, Lieutenant. I could spin a story like that in my sleep. Watch a pro at work. Zeon's mighty Guadan is in flames tonight as our heroic Titan's pilots celebrate another triumph on the road to inevitable victory. As Eugenaxis fled the battlefield, Titan's senior leadership convened for a previously scheduled team-building retreat. His Excellency Jamitov Hyman announced that, in light of the imminent defeat of the Eug and Axis Zeon threats, 
and in order to cultivate the next generation of Titan's leaders, he would be stepping down from his position as Chief Tyrannical Officer in order to spend more time with Her Excellency, Madame Hyman. Stay tuned to TNN for all the latest news about the search for his replacement. Well done, well done. Uh, just a second, I gotta queue up the next one. Subject's vitals are stable. The spikes in stress response brought on by mentions of the gate of Zidane that we observed in prior testing sessions seem to have been resolved. Okay, here's the next prompt, Lieutenant Commander. The AUG Broadcasting Channel has just released a bombshell investigative report alleging serious ethical breaches at multiple Titans New Type labs operating covertly as schools for unusually sensitive orphans. The ABC expose describes the children enrolled in these facilities as more like unwilling subjects of mad science experiments than students. And it even includes some stolen documents from one facility in Australia which seem to describe a procedure that turned a little girl into a bird. The schools received substantial funding from the Tom Thompson Memorial Fund for Transformative Education, and there are well-substantiated allegations of grievous financial misconduct as well. Hmm. Some in the mainstream media are raising questions about the innovative new educational methods pioneered by the schools for unusually sensitive orphans. A spokesperson for the Tom Thompson Memorial Fund explained that that a spokesperson for Lieutenant Tom Thompson said that he always supported a diverse array of... Uh, Tom, Tom Thompson always... Uh, Lieutenant Commander, are you alright? What's going on? My head. It hurts. I, I need my medicine. Where, where's Tom? Where's my co-host? I need my co-host. Stay calm, Lieutenant Commander. Security? Security! You said it, Tom. They do deserve to suffer. But first, we need to read the news. We'll be right back after these messages. And now the recap for The Mirror of Rosamia. The meteor base Axis is approaching Granada, and it is up to Ayug to stop it from reaching its target. None of the weapons aboard the Argama or the other ships of the Ayug fleet are strong enough to shift the massive base, and the Minovsky particles are too dense for them to get a message to the colony laser. Their only hope is to use Axis's own communication system to contact Grips 2 and plan the strike. Camille is concerned about the plan, but is ordered to get some rest. There is no telling when they might need him to launch in the Zeta. In the hall, Camille crashes into Fa, whose usual cheerfulness cracks as she lays her head against his chest and asks, Things will go back to the way they were when this is all over, right? But Camille has no comforting words for her. He, at least, cannot go back to how he was. He has a sense of duty now. As he leaves to get some rest, Foss smiles, and seems proud of him. Aboard the Dogos Gear, the remnants of the Titan's forces, led by Bascom, hunt for the Argama. Rosamia, in the Psycho Gundam Mark II, will lead the search, as they run tests on her and the new mobile suit. They have altered her memory again, this time to convince her that Gates is her older brother and he gives her orders, leads her through some calming breathing exercises, 
and sends her on her way. A small group from the Argama, Fa among them, enters Axis's interior colony. They stagger as the colony is rocked by explosions, and split up to search for the comms facility. Everywhere they look are signs that the residents of the colony left in a hurry. Lighting and air systems left on, family mementos left behind, overturned glassware still dripping on the floor. Trying to rest, Camille tosses and turns, listening to the Argama fire ineffectually on Axis. Slowly, he picks up a sound, and it grows louder and louder, like the groaning of metal or pained breathing. He gives up on rest and heads to the hangar. The attacks on Axis send parts of the colony crashing to the street below, and when Fa runs for cover, she shouts for Camille. Although Camille hears her, he knows the earlier sound was not her, and he thinks it might be four. Increasingly frantic, Rosamia searches for the Argama, and her hunt leads her out of communication range with Gates. There is no time for the Titans to worry about her or their experiments, though. A group of mobile suits arrived, led by Rekoa, and clearly sent by Sirocco to eliminate Basque. Yazan is sent out with his squad, and even Gates is ordered to turn his attention to defending the Dogos gear. New type lab scientist Lauren Nakamoto worries that separating Gates from Rosamia mid-experiment could make her unstable. Rosamia finds the Argama and attacks, and Camille is able to launch immediately, having already gotten into the Zeta. Once out in space, he hears someone say, Oni-chan! and sees flashes of Rosamia's face. The sounds and sensations he felt are getting stronger, but he remains certain that it's four. It isn't until he gets close to the Psycho Gundam Mark II that he realizes it isn't her. And yet superimposed over his vision is an image of four, crying out and clutching her head. He leads the mystery pilot down a narrow passage into Axis destroying a control panel so that the hatch closes on the mobile suit's leg. No matter how she tries to maneuver, Rosamia cannot get free. Wondering who the pilot could be, Camille leaves his cockpit to investigate. Rosamia also leaves her cockpit, firing her pistol at Camille. He returns fire and takes cover. She loses sight of him, and when he re-emerges, he tries to disarm her. A perplexed expression crosses her face as she says, Oni-chan, then grimaces in pain. Another voice, Four's voice, sounds in his head. Camille, where have you been? I've been looking for you. We're finally together. I won't ever let you go. Confused, hopeful, horrified, Camille doesn't have a chance to respond before they are both sucked down a passageway in a rush of air, and separated. Rosamia winds up on the streets of the Axis colony, limping and disoriented. Her last memory is of chasing the Zeta Gundam. She spots Fa through a shop window and goes inside. But even as Fa insists that they know each other, Rosamia's memories of Fa do not resurface. Camille emerges shortly behind Rosamia, but when he looks in the shop window, he doesn't see her, he sees four. When he calls out, Rosamia shoots at Fa, 
and Fa ducks out of the way. Fa keeps trying to reach her, but Rosamia remains distrustful, telling Fa to throw away what's in her hand. Don't you recognize it? It's just a yo-yo, a toy. Fa plays with the yo-yo and it seems almost hypnotic. Rosamia watches it rise and fall as Fa continues talking. I feel so sorry for you. You haven't been taught how to do anything but fight in the war and what good has it done? What good have any new types or cyber new types done? It's not even a real thing and yet we're fighting this war because of it. Families lived here, but now everyone has gone to fight. You wouldn't understand, you've never lived with a family. Furious, Rosamiya counters, I did have a family! Fa looks sad as she tells Rosamiya that those memories are fake. Camille tries again to get her to remember their time together, but she is in pain and runs from them, screaming for her brother. She shoots off her mobile suit's leg to get free of the hatch and blasts her way out of Axis, crying and desperate for her brother. She seems to lose control, and the Psycho Gundam's lasers fire all at once in every direction. Camille in the Zeta finally catches up to her. He sees Four and even Sarah superimposed over her and calling out to him, Help! Hurry! The lasers strike the Argama. He yells for someone, anyone, to help her, and desperately pleads with her to become Rosami, to stop this. You're not my brother, she yells and attacks the Argama. After murmuring an apology to her, Camille aims a direct hit and fires. Just before Rosamia is engulfed in the explosion, she looks out at him and says, I found you. In another battle, Rekoa lands a direct hit on the bridge of the Dogos Gear, killing Basque and most of his officers. Yazan abandons Basque and his crew, presumably to join Sirocco. The communications team gets through, the colony laser fires, and the strike shifts Axis safely away from Granada. Back on the Argama, Fa and Camille look out at the debris. Bits of Rosamia's mobile suit drift by. Fa wonders if she was too hard on her. But Camille reassures her that she didn't say anything wrong. New types really can't make a difference. With an eerie smile, he turns to her and says, all he can do is kill people. Looking sad, Fa leaves him. Char walks up, thinking he will have to comfort a grief-stricken Camille, but Camille keeps smiling. He's not worrying about what happened, because if he did, he couldn't live with himself. Char watches Camille walk away and looks troubled. I think we should start with the central question of the episode. Which is? Why does Camille keep seeing Four and sometimes Sarah when he looks at Rosamia? I can think of a couple of possibilities. I have some theories too, but what's tricky about this episode is 
I don't think the episode provides us with enough evidence to clearly pick one. No. But what what are your theories? All right, so theory one, and the thing is, I think there's good evidence for both of these, right? Okay. (laughs) I think the most straightforward theory is Camille is cracking up. And besides Camille seeing all of these new type ghosts during his encounters with Rosamia through the middle section of the episode, at the beginning, we see him first in the meeting and then talking to Fa. Something weird is going on with Camille. He's not behaving in the way we've uh, been accustomed to seeing Camille. And perhaps the best indicator that something has gone terribly wrong for him is that Char looks at him and goes, ah, yes, this Camille kid is turning out very well indeed, which you never want to hear Char say about you. Points in favor of this theory. Uh, Camille is not acting like himself. In the first part of the episode, everyone treats this like a good thing. Oh, he's being so responsible. He's being so complying. Excellent. Awesome. Char thinks it's great. Fa thinks it's great. Bright seems a little bit skeptical about whether this is good. That's true. Bright is like, "Mm, you've turned into a bit of a pessimist. I don't know how I feel about it. But by the end of the episode, everyone can see that this is not part of something healthy, that this is something that's gone too far. Yeah, this is when Camille is like, well, it turns out you can't actually save people. I guess all I can do is kill Which with says, a smile on his face. With a rather large smile on his face. And then when Shar comes by and tells him not to worry too much about having killed Rosamia, uh, Camille, again, big smile. Oh, I'm not I'm not worrying about it. Otherwise, I couldn't live with myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um. So both Shar and Fa realize... This is not good. And think about who he's seeing. He's seeing people who he misses. He's seeing people who he tried to save but couldn't. And hence that hopelessness, right? You know, I'm a new type, but I still couldn't save four. I'm a new type, but I still couldn't save Sarah. I'm a new type, but I still couldn't stop Haman. And in the end, I had to kill Rosamia. And think about what four and Sarah's ghost vision people are saying to him during this battle. They're begging him to kill Rosamia. I didn't interpret it that way at all. (laughs) They say help and they say hurry. And his first reaction is somebody help Rosamia. Mm. She's in pain. She's not trying to destroy anything. She's just like convulsing on the controls and it's dangerous and she's suffering, and she's screaming for her brother. So I interpreted it as the ghosts asking Camille to destroy the Psycho Gundam and kill Rosamia, because the message and the tone of what they're asking him to do stays the same through the episode, but by the end of it, it becomes clear that what he needs to do is to destroy her. That was always the message, but we need to go through this process to understand it. Ah, see, I understood it as... Just one more reminder to Camille of how futile this all is Mm. because he can't help them. He can't help any of them. And they're right in front of him and they're begging for his help and there's nothing he can do. And that has never changed. That has been the same through this whole experience. And here he is again, you know, Rosamia desperately needs help, may even want help, And he can't fix it. He cannot save her. So if Camille is cracking up, then these images he's seeing are lingering memories 
reminding him of how he failed to help them in the past. Yes. On the other hand, if Camille is not cracking up, or if Camille is cracking up and also <laughs> actually seeing these new type ghosts or something like, it could be that there are these lingering ghosts impressions of Four and Sarah. And rather than being the memories of people he couldn't save, they are ghosts that he can still do something for. When we've talked about angry ghosts in Japanese mythology in the past, there are things you can do for them. There are ways to appease them, proper rites and rituals for the sake of the ghosts. And so if these are lingering apparitions, maybe they actually are calling on Camille to help them now. So if they are apparitions, as you say, given the fact that Camille physically sees four in place of Rosami, like he's looking at Rosami and he sees four mm -hmm. on several occasions, is Rosamia possessed? Certainly a possibility. Here, this theory, I think, branches. <laughs> there's, there's, the way I see it, there are two more possibilities. Okay. One, we know that Rosamia has been like erased and overwritten many times. There's a bunch of different personalities there, and they're mixing up things like who her brother is. You know, her having a brother remains constant, but they can just erase Camille and write in Gates Kappa. So maybe at this point, her mind, her persona is so malleable, so plastic that it's like a blank slate and they're just sort of projecting things onto it. And maybe some of the things they're projecting onto it are the same things they projected onto four and onto Sarah. And so Camille is actually seeing bits of four bits of Sarah in the Rosamia construct. The other possibility, and I th think this one is where I'm leaning, is that Four left something of herself in the Psycho Gundam or got some part of herself from the Psycho Gundam and that this Psycho Gundam Mark II incorporates some of the original Psycho Gundam's Saikamu system, the, the combat system that Amuro described. And so by plugging into the same thing that Four was plugged into, some Fourness has rubbed off on Rosamia. So I had not considered about the Psycho Gundam. They actually never in the episode say that that's what she's piloting. Bright, I think, remarks that it's similar <laughs> to the Psycho Gundam, but they never name the mobile armor. That's true. Uh, it's the Psycho Gundam Mark II. Okay. Well, it's cool looking. It's a lot cooler than the Psycho Gundam was. Yes. And the music when they introduce it is incredible. <laughs> so good. Yeah, the technicals for this episode, the music, the animation, the way it's directed, all top-notch. But coming back to the spirits, I feel like the, the somewhat more mystical explanation, and in some ways more in keeping with the canon of the show, is some kind of quote-unquote like spirit channeling or spirit possession, because we've heard Char mention that Lala's spirit is still around right? Mm -hmm. Some part of her persists out in space. And we've only heard of this happening with her. And the implication is that it's because she was such a strong new type. And just in the last episode, when Camille hears that voice right before he tries to kill Haman, the one that makes him hesitate and miss his opportunity, what is a mysterious voice talking to you from the void of space except like a spirit? He also acknowledges that he believes four persists out in space and that he will get to be with her 
in that way if he's a strong enough new type. And he also talked about the idea that four might live inside him. And Rosamia, both because of her power and because of her blankness, might almost be like a conduit. Mm. Like, this is very much on the spirit possession side, but when there's that moment when four, quote unquote, is speaking to him, I've found you, we can finally be together, I'm never going to let you go. If her spirit's been wandering around in space and just like found this kind of vacant new typey vessel uh. and was like, oh, now I can be with Camille. <laughs> um, I mean, that's very, we're getting very much into like ghosts and spirits yeah. and magic and whatnot. I mean, that's creepy, but also interesting. And I really want to watch that show. <laughs> um, also, just there are a lot of... Uh, Japanese horror stories and myths that have to do with spirit possession. Uh, one of the stories in the tale of Genji that uh, also exists as a no play is about one of his forsaken lovers. Uh, she's so angry and jealous that he's forsaken her that when she's asleep, her spirit goes and attacks his wife. <laughs> <laughs> And she's not even conscious of it. She has nightmares and she wakes up exhausted and like doesn't know. She has some inkling, but she doesn't have control over the fact that her spirit is attacking this other woman every night. Um, and I think eventually kills her is how that story ends. But I haven't read it in a long time. Uh, but what I'm getting at is there's a long history in Japanese literature uh, and folklore of spirit possession. Now, these different theories we've laid out are by no means mutually exclusive. The fact that Camille is not just getting a four-like impression or seeing a four specter, but actually looking at Rosamia and seeing four like he does in the confrontation in the toy store, which is probably the most important scene in the whole episode, mm -hmm. Camille is clearly losing touch with physical reality. The stress, his awakening new type abilities, all the ghosts swirling around him have combined to make Camille less engaged with the literal reality in front of him and more with the spirit that lies beneath. I do want to mention one thing about Rosamia and the Psycho Gundam that I think is very important, but I'm not entirely sure how it connects to everything else, which is when Camille traps the Psycho Gundam in his ersatz bear trap by using some doors on access to snap closed around the Psycho Gundam's ankle. A scene later, when Rosamia is walking around inside of Axis, she stumbles and appears to be injured on the same ankle as her mobile suit was. There's some kind of... Feedback loop. Yeah, some kind of connection between her body and that idealized robot body. And remember that when Four died, there wasn't any physical damage on her body, but she was killed when the Psycho Gundam she was piloting was stabbed through the forehead. Let's talk about the Toy Store scene. In this episode, we get a lot of insight into Fa's development as a person, independent of her relationship with Camille. And independent of her relationship with the two orphans. Like, this is Fa as Fa herself. Fa is a person, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. When she runs into Camille, we can tell that the war is starting to get to her. She hugs him and she says, 
when this is over, things will go back to how they were, right? Like she is now hungering for childhood, for arguing about nothing, for going to school. And how appropriate then that she winds up in a toy store. She is getting to a point now that Camille started at. She's almost moving in reverse a bit. He started clinging to his childhood and now he is professing like, no, now I understand my responsibilities. She started with, I have to help any way I can and be responsible. Now she is lamenting the passage of her childhood. She's looking in the windows of the homes and businesses on Axis, and it's just normal families, right? Normal families, but one of those kids looks a whole lot like Fa. I thought the little boy looked a lot like Camille, too, just different colored hair. But, you know, normal families who left in such a hurry that there's overturned glassware that still has wine dripping out of it or juice or whatever. And as she says... These are people who went out to fight in the war. Like This is an image of a life, a family, a childhood, all a whole city, really, interrupted by the cruel necessities of war. After Rosamia shoots at her, Rosamia says, drop it. And the way that the shot from behind Fa goes, we think she's holding a gun at her side. And then she's like, it's just a yo-yo. Don't you even know what this is? And she goes into this monologue, which is the most we have ever heard her talk, I think, except maybe for when she first argues with Camille. And they're both sort of hurt and wanting comfort of each other, but neither can do that. (laughs) Uh, But here, she talks about how sorry she feels for her, how cyber new types are taught only to fight in war, and it doesn't do any good. And it's like, what good do cyber new types or new types do? None. And Camille is watching this too. She alleges that new types aren't a real thing or like aren't a thing, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, I don't know where that's coming <laughs> from. I I think there's ample evidence that new types are a thing, but. But I think I get what she's saying. And admittedly, I'm projecting a lot of things onto her right now. But I think what she's saying is like, people have this idea of like new type. But they're just people. They're just people with different abilities. There's nothing special about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and that may be what she's sort of coming to when she then says that the war started because of new types. Mm -hmm. Because we've talked a lot about, you know, the oppression of the Titans against space noids, the remnants of Xeon, all of these other elements. But on a sort of deep level, Fa could very well feel that this is really about some people think humanity should go to space and become new types. Some people think they shouldn't or that new (laughs) types are bad and therefore we're having this big war. I think it's a pretty clear conflict between people who want everybody to become new types, who are eager for the advent of new typism as the future of humanity, you know, sort of new type supremacists. <coughs> Quattro! And then on the other side, you have people experiencing new type anxiety, people who are afraid of what happens when people become new types, of what happens to old types in that situation. Those are the people whose souls are weighed down by gravity. And that's the animating principle behind the Titans. We need to crush the space noids. We need to crush the idea of new types so that they never replace us. 
But maybe Fa is saying that the difference between being a new type and an old type is not binary. You're not one or the other. Everyone is somewhere within this nebulous category of human, and that includes people whose new type abilities are very strong in some ways and very weak in others, and people who have no abilities whatsoever but maybe could develop them under the right circumstances. And so this obsession with being a new type and what it means to be a new type and new type as a kind of messiah figure is ultimately meaningless. The focus in the scene goes back and forth between people's faces and the yo-yo, which is almost hypnotic, right? Rosamia and Camille just keep watching this yo-yo go up and down, up and down while Fa talks. But when you see Fa's face, she's so angry. And we so rarely see her, like, really angry. But she looks angry and hurt. And I just realized something really important. <laughs> she tells Rosamia, you wouldn't understand. You've never had a family. I did have a family, she counters. When Camille tries to talk to her about, do you remember when we went boating and so on, that's when Rosamia's head starts to hurt. Because that memory is counter to what they've wiped it over with. They've replaced him with Gates as the brother figure. And so the attempt to recall this like underlying data causes her physical pain. It's like a manifestation of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it causes her physical, almost debilitating pain. And not just pain, but terror. She runs away calling for her brother in her child voice she shoots her her own leg off she shoots the leg off of the psycho gundam mark ii to get away she is so desperate to get away she shoots off her own leg well and then she just starts spraying destruction in every direction randomly attacking she's like desperate for her brother she keeps calling out he grabs hold of her and he asks her to become Rosami. And then, of course, after he shoots and she gets launched clear of the mobile suit, that's when she looks at him and says, I found you before the explosion kills her. So she, like many of the new type women, dies with a smile on her face. The other bit of character development that we see for Fa in this episode is at the end when Camille says... I guess I'm only good for killing folks. Uh, <laughs> she just says his name and looks at him sadly and walks away. And I feel like previous versions of Fa, Fa at other times in her life, would have argued with him, would have told him that's not true, or would have scolded him, would have told him he was being self-centered and morose. But she is not willing, perhaps, to do that emotional work for him anymore. I think she recognizes that Camille is not in a right state right now. There's no point in trying to talk him out of it when it's so clear that this is the product of a lot of pain, really just overwhelming Camille. I wish they had had that conversation somewhere else rather than just in the halls of the Argama because Fa's energy leaving is powerful Mirai goodbye from First Gundam. <laughs> I just want her to like float away toward the camera as Camille dwindles in the background. But apparently it's highly essential that we see the broken bits of the Psycho Gundam floating by in the window. Hmm. You know who else floated away? 
Yazan. <laughs> he briefly appears. Basque is like, send out Yazan's team. Yazan sees the Dogo's gear get blown up and is like, all right, I'm out. Yeah, he does not say a word. No. His voice actor was clearly not there this week. I assume he's going to join Sirocco. I'm confused as to why he was with Basque in the first place, since it seemed like Yazan had signed on with Sirocco a while back. But he may have stayed with the Dogos gear when the Dogos gear sort of shifted commands. I think he was on the Alexandria for a while. Here's a question for you. Was Yazan there at Sirocco's request? I don't know. Honestly, I think they've probably lost track of what, <laughs> of what they meant for various people to be doing. They've probably lost track of all of Sirocco's plots. Let's uh, just assume that everything is a Sirocco plot now. Rekoa shooting directly into the bridge of the Dogo's gear is big vengeance energy. <laughs> Bye, Basque. Remember that time you punched me in the face? I do. Kerblamo. Remember that time you made me kill all those civilians? I can hear the quotation marks around made. Well, good, because they were there. <laughs> I assume Gates is also dead. I don't think we see him die, but he's probably gone. And he's in a lot of pain when Rosamia dies because of their connection. Yeah, he felt sort of pointless to introduce. Yeah. They just needed some other new type for Rosamia to connect to. And so we Someone get... for her to imprint on other than Camille. Yeah, when you think about Gates and a lot of these other characters, Zeta is pretty repetitive, isn't it? We get a lot of characters who kind of act the same and kind of fulfill the same roles in the story and kind of do the same jobs as each other. They could easily have been condensed into a single character. Also, this is what, the fourth time that Granada has been imperiled? Fifth, maybe? And the Argama has raced to its defense? Yes, because apparently they don't have their own defenses. <laughs> I do like, however, that this episode has a kind of race against time feel. Like, yeah, the Titans are there messing things up and, and making things interesting, but the real threat is Axis, and the real action of the episode is about trying to divert this asteroid before it strikes the moon. Unfortunately, a lot of the rest of my thoughts are sort of little unconnected tidbits about the episode, <laughs> but... When they first introduced Rosamia and Gates in this episode, it's very clear that a lot of care is being taken to manage Rosamia in her sort of fragile and volatile state, uh, in addition to sort of imprinting her on Gates so that the person handling her is somebody she trusts implicitly. Gates is leading her through breathing exercises. All right, we're going to manage that anxiety. Take two deep breaths. All right, you've got this. Now go destroy the Zeta. <laughs> <laughs> I was very proud of myself for uh, recognizing a jujitsu technique in this episode. Uh, Camille and Rosamia have their gunfight after they've gotten out of their mobile suits. And then Camille sort of tackles Rosamia. And while he is trying to pin her gun arm uh, or get the gun out of her hands, he gets her in a body triangle. Well, very nearly. Not, he doesn't yeah, not quite, quite lock it up, which I think is why when they get caught in the blast of air from the airlock, they get separated. If Camille had good technique <laughs> and he had actually locked up that body triangle, they would still be together. This is basically when you wrap your legs around someone's midsection and you hook one of your ankles behind the other knee. If you do it properly, it's very strong and very difficult to get out of. 
and makes it hard for the other person to like move or breathe. Uh, also, you pointed out a very good point to me. Most of the techniques you would use to control someone you had tackled in this way, if you were in regular gravity, if you were in a regular situation, involve pinning that person to the floor. But in zero G, you can't pin someone <laughs> to the floor. So this is the next best way to try and control someone's movement. The body triangle is actually a great way to control somebody who is on top of you, if you can manage to pull it off. One of the problems of it is that against a larger person, it's very difficult to get your legs into the right position. Luckily, Rosamia is like- Tiny. Size zero. <laughs> she wears a very, very slender normal suit. They're all tiny. <laughs> But long-limbed, it's helpful for this sort of thing. Yeah, there's a ton of really nice little touches in this episode. One I particularly liked in the initial scene between Fa and Camille when they run into each other in the hallway and Fa is talking about going back to the way things were. There's a moment of intense but unspoken emotion between the two of them. It's a classic Tomino Gundam moment when we know very strong feelings are being felt, but neither one can say anything. And when they do this, the camera zooms out and we see like a pen floating by and we hear a couple of crewmen on the Argama jostling some piece of equipment they're moving. And you get this sense of like, this is life for them. Fa's talking about going back to normal life, but this is a normal life that they're having. And everyone is just living on this spaceship. We also have Camille strapped into his bed when he's trying to rest, which is not something we've seen before, but it's certainly a thing on different kinds of vessels and you would certainly need it if you were in insufficient gravity or if you were in a ship that's in the process of doing battle and you don't want to risk falling out of bed during maneuvers. Little things like the way they zoomed in on Camille's face and then his ear the first time he hears what I'm thinking of as Rosamia. And initially it's not a voice. Initially it's almost like a like the groaning of metal. He hears her. Eventually he does hear her speaking and she's saying in his mind, the same things she's saying when she appears later in the show, but the tone is totally different. In his mind, she sounds panicky, she sounds desperate, whereas when she appears in the flesh, she's a lot more confident and calm. They do a lot of things in this episode to express the new type connections in other ways than what we've become accustomed to seeing. Like, they keep doing this thing where Rosamia's lips and eyes are superimposed over the faces of the people she's talking to. It's very cool. And since we're talking about the episode and what a nicely put together episode it is, uh, this one was directed by Sekita Osamu. Sekita is a longtime collaborator with Tomino and other Sunrise Productions. He was an episode director on, among other things, First Gundam, uh, Combat Mecha Zabongol, Aura Battler Dunbine, Space Runaway Ideon, Elgheim, and he is going to be the director for the original SD Gundam. He's also going to go on to be the series director, the lead director for uh, Beast Wars 2, Beast Wars Neo, and Robots in Disguise, which in the late 90s were a series of Japan-only entries in the Transformers franchise. I want to close by talking again about that last scene with Char and Camille. And the expression on Char's face at the end when Camille walks away, I think Char, on some level, inside where it counts, really hates what he's done to Camille. It's very noticeable in the episode 
when he's walking up to Camille, he's smiling. And it feels sort of inappropriate how like happy he seems to tell Camille, oh, don't you worry, kid, about that girl you killed. I mean, for one thing, he's just emoting way more than he ever does. He doesn't have his sunglasses on. You get a lot more emotion than you typically do from him because the mask is off. But then the minute Camille responds with, oh, I'm not worried because then I couldn't live with myself. Part of the happy expression on Char's face goes away. And as Camille leaves, his face falls. He looks sad. Char likes to be the strong one. And as much as Char warns people not to be Amaro, I do think Char respects Amaro. And before, he told Camille, oh, I think you're turning into Amaro, be careful. But now he's seeing a Camille who is who is broken, perhaps, who, who has lost a lot of what Char liked about him, even if he was constantly telling Camille to change. <laughs> and this new version of Camille is kind of a lot like Char. And now, the research on Basque Om's voice actor. We wave goodbye to Basque Om with about as much regret as Rekua displayed when she vaporized him and the bridge he flew in on. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. As for new type researcher Lauren Nakamoto and the rest of the bridge crew on the Dogos gear, well, such are the perils of signing on with a group like the Titans. But while we do not mourn for Captain Basque, we still have to admire how Zeta's creative team elegantly personified the attitude of the whole Titans organization through its leader. His influence on the spirit of the Titans was far greater than that of its nominal leader, that detached aristocrat Jamatov Hyman. A giant of a man, one source lists Basque's height as 6 foot 8, or 203 centimeters, and built like a prizefighter gone to seed, Basque is all power no subtlety. Basque disciplined and punished his own subordinates with the same callous brutality that his officers deployed against restive civilians. The tone comes from the top, as they say. Much of the vitality in Basque comes from the resounding vocal performance delivered by veteran voice actor Gori Daisuke. He was born Nagahori Yoshio in the Koto Ward of Tokyo in 1952. Today, Gundam fans outside of Japan might recognize Koto because that ward includes part of the island Odaiba in Tokyo Bay, including the Diver City shopping plaza where, in 2009, a life-sized statue of the original Gundam was erected, and where a statue of the Unicorn Gundam stands right now. But seven years before Gori's birth, on March 9th and 10th, 1945, Koto was also the epicenter of the Allied firebombing of Tokyo. The first bombers dropped their payloads over Koto and the neighboring Chuo ward, creating a giant burning napalm X for the successive waves to target. All through the night, more than 200 B-29 bombers dropped 1,665 tons of bombs on Tokyo. Koto ward, along with much of the city, was obliterated. 100,000 people died and a million more were rendered homeless by the conflagration. It took six years to lay all the victims of the bombing raid to rest, 
and the reconstruction of Koto would not begin in earnest until the 1950s, continuing into the 1960s. So Gori grew up in the wreckage left by the war, and like the characters he would go on to play, he grew up big. Nearly six feet tall and 170 pounds might not sound like much now, but you've got to remember that Gori grew up in post-war Japan, where the average height for a man was four inches or around 10 centimeters shorter. So he was not quite a life-sized replica of Bascom, but still pretty close. When he adopted the stage name Gori, one of his mentors joked that maybe he should have gone with Gorilla instead. After high school, he started training at the Terebi Tarento Senta, the Television Talent Center. There, in 1972, he met Inoue Kazuhiko, another voice actor in training two years his junior. The two became close friends, working part-time shifts together at soba restaurants and McDonald's while they waited for their big break. They told each other that someday they'd be starring together in the same project. Both worked bit parts through the 70s. Gori played roles like policeman and taxi driver in Lupin III. Inoue played soldier in Mazinger Z, soldier in Getter Robo, and in UFO Robo Grendizer he played soldier. Both started to break through in the late 70s. Inoue landed a major role in the anime production Candy Candy. He also married the mangaka who illustrates Candy Candy around this time. He also found roles in Cyborg Joe and Anne of Green Gables. At the same time, Gori got his first real role as Dozel Zabi in First Gundam. He worked steadily after that, with frequent roles in the big mecha shows of the early 80s, like Invincible Robo Trider G7, Thang of the Sun Dogram, and Tomino's Combat Mecha Zabungal. But his skills and his voice made him more suited to villains and monsters than main characters. His first truly major role, and the first of many that would become inseparable from his name ever after, was as heel-turned-face Robin Mask in the 1983 anime version of long-running wrestling manga Kinikuman. During the 80s, Gori and Inoue occasionally found themselves performing regular roles on the same productions. The first time this happened, they went out to celebrate, and ended up sobbing into their yakitori together, overcome by joy that they were finally doing what they had dreamed of doing. Everything I've read about Gori suggests that he just really loved acting, he loved working, he loved playing these roles. Not long after that, they were cast together in another project, Zeta Gundam, where Gori playing Basque became the only returning voice actor from First Gundam to play a new character, and his friend Inoue became his subordinate, Jared Mesa. In the decades after Zeta, both went on to become stars. Gori lent his booming voice to the likes of Heihachi Mishima in the Tekken video games, and Mr. Satan, also known as Hercule, in the Dragon Ball series. He worked regularly as a narrator for TV. News programs called him in when they needed someone to do high-tension, scary narration for international crises. He even developed a specialty as the narrator for all North Korea-related news on one weekly news program. But in the 2000s, Gori developed diabetes. He suffered retinal detachment because of the disease, and he began to go blind. He complained to his colleagues about no longer being able to read the scripts no longer being able to work the way he wanted to. He took on fewer and fewer roles. From 2007 to 2009, he mostly just reprised roles that he had already voiced for decades. In late 2009, he ran into Inoue again. 
The two had lost touch in the interceding years when Inoue married and started spending his free time with his wife and his son. But by 2009, Inoue was approaching the end of his third marriage because it seems that Jared Mesa and Jared Mesa's voice actor have more in common than you would expect. And Inoue was regretting losing touch with the man that he still considered his best friend. I've grown old, Gori complained bitterly, though he was only 57. A scant few weeks later, Gori was discovered dead a short walk from his home. He was carrying a note addressed to his family that read, I'm sorry. Thank you. Our discussions of Rosamia, our attempts to discern what, if anything, in her personality and expression is organically her, what is manufactured or constructed, and whether that ultimately makes any difference, reminded me of some passages from one of my favorite books, The Age of Innocence, by Edith Wharton. It is, for the most part, a story about the social customs and mores of Gilded Age New York high society. The main character, Newland Archer, is a young man caught between two women and two potential lives. His fiancée and later wife, May, is ideal by the standards of their social circle. She conforms with the customs and expectations of their class, their community, and their families. Her cousin Ellen had an unusual upbringing, married in Europe, and returns to New York clouded in scandal after separating from her husband. She represents a break from routine and conformity, but being with her would seem to involve either completely cutting ties with his old life or living as so many of the peers he disdains do, with a wife and a mistress. The book is told from Newland's perspective, and he frequently ruminates on the ways in which May is a construction formed by the society they live in. And many of his thoughts feel as though they could be about Rosamia. Full of tenderness for her abysmal purity, he reviewed his friends' marriages, the supposedly happy ones, and saw none that answered even remotely to the passionate and tender comradeship which he pictured as his permanent relation with May Welland. He perceived that such a picture presupposed on her part the experience, the versatility, the freedom of judgment, which she had been carefully trained not to possess. The young girl who was the center of this elaborate system of mystification remained the more inscrutable for her very frankness and assurance. She was frank, poor darling, because she had nothing to conceal, assured because she knew of nothing to be on her guard against. He returned discouraged by the thought that all this frankness and innocence were only an artificial product. Untrained human nature is not frank and innocent, it was full of the twists and defenses of an instinctive guile. And he felt himself oppressed by this creation of factitious purity, so cunningly manufactured by a conspiracy of mothers and aunts and grandmothers and long-dead ancestresses, because it was supposed to be what he wanted. He goes on to wonder, would this shaping, this construction of innocence, actually fall away with experience? It would presently be his task to take the bandage from this young woman's eyes and bid her look forth on the world. 
But how many generations of the women who had gone to her making had descended bandaged to the family vault? What if, when he had bidden May Welland to open her eyes, they could only look out blankly at blankness? Eventually, they have known each other long enough and lived together long enough that he gives up any idea of trying to disengage her real self from the shape into which tradition and training had molded her. Rosamia and Four have experiences, but with the constant interference with their minds, never seem to be changed or shaped by them. In the interval, not a thought seemed to have passed behind her eyes or a feeling through her heart. And though her husband knew that she had the capacity for both, he marveled afresh at the way in which experience dropped away from her. So she had remained, so lacking in imagination, so incapable of growth, that the world of her youth had fallen into pieces and rebuilt itself without her ever being conscious of the change. This hard, bright blindness had kept her immediate horizon apparently unaltered. Even Camille's failed attempts to save her, and for, and Sarah, find expression here when Newland thinks to himself, there was no use trying to emancipate a wife who had not the dimmest notion that she was not free. And he had long since discovered that May's only use of the liberty she supposed herself to possess would be to lay it on the altar of her wifely adoration. How many times does Camille try to save someone who doesn't want to be saved? Who doesn't feel in need of saving? How many of these women then die sacrificing themselves for some other ideal, be it the Titans, Sirocco, or even Camille's own sake? There is another layer in all this. Within the narrative of Zeta Gundam, cyber new types are created, modified, and manipulated in order to be ideal mobile suit pilots. But as a fictional character, Rosamia was already 100% a construction, a character mostly created by men in order to serve a function within the narrative, but also to be, as Tom succinctly put it, waifu bait. These young cyber new type women and girls, even when they fight for the other side, are designed to be desired. And that isn't simply a matter of visual design, it is their personalities too. Which is pretty dark when you think about it. We are supposed to be attracted by Four's anguish and volatility, Sarah's anger and devotion, Rosami's vulnerability and innocence. We are supposed to find their blankness tragic, but also appealing. At the same time, the overlay of these three in Camille's mind, the similarity of their storylines, suggests interchangeability. They represent a type or a feeling, rather than individuals. They exist to teach Camille hard lessons. He cannot put his personal desires above the safety and survival of his comrades. He cannot save everyone. He cannot truly know another person. And then he changes. How many times have we groaned when he lets an enemy who happens to be a woman or girl to whom he feels some attachment, go free, only for her to kill more civilians or more Ayug pilots. But this time, when it is clear that no one can stop an out-of-control Rosamia, he fires. 
It is an act that seems to break him. All his new type abilities couldn't get through to her. He could not resurrect the gentle Rosami. All he could do was stop her when the time came. I was hesitant to focus so much on Camille at the end of what is meant to be a memorial for Rosamia. But this is her role in the story. This is what her death achieves. At the end of The Age of Innocence, Newland Archer reflects back on his life, and we can almost hear Camille thinking the same thoughts at the end of this episode. The worst of doing one's duty was that it, apparently, unfitted one for doing anything else. The trenchant divisions between right and wrong, honest and dishonest, respectable and the reverse, had left so little scope for the unforeseen. There are moments when a man's imagination, so easily subdued to what it lives in, suddenly rises above its daily level and surveys the long windings of destiny. Archer hung there and wondered, what was left of the little world he had grown up in, and whose standards had bent and bound him? Next time on episode 2.50, Awakening, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 49 and Thunderbolts and Lightning. With a gun this size, we could kill everyone! Pickled Radish. You beautiful dumb idiot. Too close for sabers, switching to hugs. Get in, loser, we're saving you! Firing into the air while screaming used and humiliated, third eye, and Yazan learns fear. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, I wish I had watched Zeta Gundam back in the 80s. It just doesn't feel relevant today. Out your window at passersby. We might not hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Ruby. Thank you, Ruby. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. 
and thank you for listening. What is going on in Camille's brain? <laughs> Sorry, but everything I think of as a response to that is just like reiterating you just said. So I'm like... Are you going to mention that we have the memorial? We for... don't usually. Okay. It's a surprise when we do it. Great job. Thank you. You crack up nicely. Scary in and of itself, but okay. <laughs>